The following message is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, it's, uh, I, I don't think I can quite explain what a delight it is to be with you. Um, Alistair's given to a degree of Scottish exaggeration, you know that. <laughs> But from my side, I'm an Australian, we exaggerate nothing. And uh, it's an absolute delight to be here. And, uh, and, and we are so grateful for the invitation. Uh, and Moyer and I, I just want to say thank you to Alistair and to everyone here at Parkside and uh, the uh, possibility to be with you. We've been looking forward keenly to these few days uh, for several years now, as you know. And uh, I'm looking forward to every opportunity of fellowship and conversation, and I hope that there are many of them, and uh, look forward to meeting many of you. I I, I guess it's not going to be possible, is it, to speak with every single one of you? I'd like that, but uh, I hope they have plenty of opportunities for that. Now, can I ask you, please, to uh, turn in your Bible to the uh, second book of Kings, that favourite of many, 2 Kings chapter 1, and if you would also find your place... In Romans chapter 1, to 2 Kings chapter 1 and Romans 1. And as we approach this, we cannot have enough prayer, so I'll ask you to pray with me. We remember how the Apostle teaches us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, in whom is the fullness of light and wisdom, enlighten our minds by your holy breath, and give us grace to receive your word with reverence and humility, without which no one can understand your truth. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Alistair has alluded to this, but uh, in recent years uh, I have found myself for various reasons and from time to time wondering what those reasons were, but for various reasons absorbed, um, fascinated, uh, deeply moved by a part of the Bible to which I had not previously paid a lot of attention, namely the books of 1 Samuel through to 2 Kings. And what has particularly struck me has been what I like to call the gospel power of these narratives. Now, I think that's something that we would all want to say about any part of Scripture that, for whatever reason, has captured our attention, but that does not make it any less wonderful when it's encountered in a particular place. And over the next uh, couple of days, uh, I would like to be sharing with you, uh, inadequately, I have no doubt, but something of the riches of three narratives in the second book of Kings. Now, I think it's fair to say that Two Kings is an Old Testament book that does not receive a lot of attention from most of us. Certainly, it hadn't received much attention from me until I was directed in this direction for other reasons. Uh, Indeed, of these books that I've been focused on of late, I have to confess that Two Kings seem to me to be the least exciting. Uh, You have no Samuel there. You have no David. you You don't even have a Saul, the great Elijah leaves in the second chapter. Admittedly, it's rather a spectacular departure, but he's gone by the second chapter. 
And the best the book has to offer in terms of interesting, powerful characters is Elisha, uh, Elijah's successor, but we only have him for the first half of the book. Now, of course, it's true that Two Kings does have its moments, but overall, I think most of us find the story of king after king after king. On my account, there are 29 of them in this parallel history of northern and southern kingdom, and then every now and again, the one in the north has the same name as the one in the south, and you can't work out where you are. I think most of us, I think, uh, well, I I speak for myself, I'm just hoping that you join me in this, uh, have to confess that it's a part of the Bible that is confusing, and if I might uh, dare to say, uh, I have to confess I found it at times tedious. Now, I want to say to you that that was a mistake, I don't think it was a mistake to find it was tedious, but it was a mistake to think that that was unimportant. We might get to some of that in a few moments. But paying more careful attention to the second book of Kings, I found myself confronted, and this is how I'd now try to sum up the message of the book as a whole, with the truth about our troubled world. The truth about our troubled world. Now that's a rather big thing to say. But I hope that I'm not saying it glibly. And this evening, we're going to begin to try to bring the second book of Kings into focus, the truth about our troubled world, and then delve into the astonishing story that occupies the first chapter of the book, uh, which I've given the heading, Is It Because There Is No God? Is It Because There Is No God? But before we come to two kings, come with me, uh, you'll get used to this, I do this strange sort of thing, come with me to Romans chapter 1 for a moment, Romans 1, which is going to considerably help us in the focusing. Uh, I'd love to read the whole chapter, uh, really, but I won't. Uh, we'll go straight to cha- Romans chapter 1, verse 22, Romans 1, 22. Listen to this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. Now, I'm sure you know the context well. Paul is talking about the gospel, the power of God for salvation, verse 16, in which the righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17, and at the same time, in which the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth, verse 18. And so Paul is helping us to see the world in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do you see? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. Therefore, God gave them up. Now, friends, that's our world. Do you recognize it? 
a world in deeper trouble than most people are prepared to, to take seriously, which, which kind of proves the point. By their wickedness, they suppress the truth and so become fools and suffer the consequences. If it's the world in which we live, if we live in this world, to some degree it is the air that we breathe. And it is not for us really, ultimately, to be standing back and pointing the finger at the world out there. That's, that's a job to do. We've got to understand the world. We've got to look at the world and, and, and yes, make judgments about the world. But we must take careful note of the degree to which the world is in us as we are in the world. Now, like like most of us these days, uh, I think most people I talk to, this seems to be uh, on our minds, Uh, I try to take an interest in the things that seem to be going on around us, Uh, the alarming cultural and moral confusion that confronts us, the uh, everything from lifestyle to politics. I join in the Uh, the deep distress that all of us feel and the heartache at the terrible suffering that is going on in so many places. Uh, I'm deliberately holding back from specifics here, but you can immediately fill in specifics, can't you? And like everyone, I've got my opinions about this and about that. But what if I could see the world, our world, our 2022 world, what if I could see clearly in the bright light of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That'd make a difference, wouldn't it? Well, here's the truth about our troubled world. The truth that puts my opinions about this and that into perspective. Claiming to be wise. (laughs) You can see that, can't you? Claiming to be wise. They became fools. For could there be anything more foolish than this? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. Therefore, God gave them up. Okay, now let's come to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 1. And I'm turning now to 2 Kings, and I've introduced our turning now to 2 Kings in that way because... In this book, we will discover that the truth about our troubled world was once the truth about the nation of Israel. And that's what the second book of Kings is about. Uh, Put very briefly, I'm sure you know the story, but the uh, two Kings tells the story really of how and why the Old Testament nation of Israel already split into that northern breakaway state that kept the name Israel and what was left in the south, now called Judah, how and why the whole people was expelled from the land that God had given them. God gave them up, you might say. Now, that's not the whole story, any more than Romans 1 is the whole of Romans. But it is fundamental And what happened to Israel in the second book of Kings is on this this national scale, 
it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of reflection or a repetition or an echo, or I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but it's related to what happened to humanity at the beginning, where Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden in which God had placed them. God gave them up, we might say. Now, that's not the whole story, of course, but it is fundamental and it is important. So I've come to think of two kings as the kind of Romans 1 of the Old Testament, both with profound connections to Genesis chapter 3, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. Therefore, God gave them up. Now, friends, if if I were embarking on an exposition of the whole book of two kings, I would probably have introduced the book along these sort of lines in an introductory sermon on the first verse. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the first verse. The first verse of two kings is quite peculiar. We're not going there now. This is not that sermon. Uh, but I would probably have had an introductory sermon that would have introduced the, the book from this perspective, from the perspective of its place in the, in the whole canon of Scripture. And uh, that, uh, yeah, I, I would have been looking at chapter 1, verse 1. I haven't, I, I haven't actually done that, but I think that's what I'd do. Maybe when I tried, it would be too hard for me. What we are doing now, however, is turning to the astonishing story that begins in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. It unfolds in a series of scenes, and I'd like you to come with me and hear this story. Scene one, the accident. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. Well, we need to get our bearings a little. Uh, If we had just read 1 Kings, if we'd just been reading through 1 Kings, we'd know that Ahaziah was the king of the northern breakaway state. He was, in fact, the eighth king of uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel in 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 a period of about seven decades. And he maintained the, the secessionist policy of repudiating Jerusalem to the south and all that Jerusalem stood for. While rather oddly, I've never really worked out why this is the case, but retaining the national name Israel. Ahaziah's father, you'll remember who he was, he was Ahab, Israel's worst king, at least so far. Ahab's story has occupied the last seven chapters of one kings. Uh, Ahaziah's mum, uh, she was the pagan queen Jezebel. Um, you might like to say that Ahaziah did not have a great start in life. But here we are, one day, around about 850 BC, we're in Ahaziah's royal city, Samaria. Uh, Samaria had been established by his grandfather. Uh, His father, Ahab, had built a temple in this city for the pagan god Baal. Um, Ahaziah's mother was a Baal fanatic, and she was the kind of lady who tended to get her way. Hence, there was a temple for Baal in Samaria. And on this particular day, King Ahaziah had this nasty fall. Uh, Verse 2 talks about his upper chamber. That would have been 
a structure on the, uh, built on the flat roof of his palace. And there, it seems, he leaned against a, a lattice screen. Perhaps it was there for shade or privacy or something like that. Uh, the screen gave way, and Ahaziah fell, probably all the way to the ground. His injuries were serious, and he was confined to bed. <laughs> it seems to me that that's a rather odd incident with which to begin the second book of Kings. Um, uh, there's all sorts of argument in the technical commentaries about this, but I do think that the second book of Kings is a, is a book of... Uh, ha- has an integrity as a book, if you know what I mean. Of course it's continuous with what precedes, but it has that integrity as a book. Uh, you don't, you're not starting here with a king wounded in battle. That's what, it's, that's what had happened to Ahab in the last chapter of 1 Kings, but this is just a bit of clumsiness. And, uh, and, and, and some dodgy building work in some area. You, do, you don't want to get those builders in again. It's the ordinariness of this scene that I think is striking. It's the kind of thing that occurs every day. Accidents happen. People get hurt, often badly. But the story is not about Ahaziah's bruises and broken bones, it's his immediate response to the accident that gets the story going. So in verse 2 again, so he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. And the implication is how I can ensure that I will recover. It's a lovely verse, this one, really. Well, it's not really, is it? Of course, it's an ugly verse, but the Bible writers had a lot of fun with names that they wanted to mock. So Baal-zebul would have meant Prince Baal, but our writer prefers to call him Baal-zebub, Baal of flies. He's the original Lord of the flies. So the king of Israel, in his time of need, turns to Baal the pest, and to do that, he has to send messengers to Ekron. Really? Ekron was a town about 40 miles to the southwest from Samaria, belonging to, of all people, the Philistines. So the king of Israel looks for help in his time of need to the Philistines. Now, if you're familiar with the history, this is quite a turnaround. It's a bit like David asking for help and counselling from Goliath, you know, that, that, if you can picture that. But why? Why do you think Ahaziah felt the need, A, to consult Baal, and B, to send to Ekron, for goodness sake, for that purpose? Hadn't his father built a house for Baal right there in Samaria? Scene two. Scene 2, the question, verses 3 and 4. So as Ahaziah's messengers set out from Samaria towards Ekron, verse 3, but the messenger, uh, that's the same word, whatever your translation is, it's the same word as in verse 2, the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, see Ahaziah was not not the only king who could send messengers. The Lord's messenger came to... Elijah the Tishbite, verse 3. Elijah, my God is Yahweh. Elijah was, I think, um, I'll I'll try and hint at why I think this as, as we work through, but I think he was on Mount Carmel at the time. 
about 30 miles to the northwest from Samaria. And this is what the Lord's messenger said to Elijah. Again in verse 3, Arise, go up to meet the messengers from the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? What could possibly explain this bizarre expedition of yours to the land of the Philistines to consult Baal? Is it because you've come to think that the God of Israel is no longer here? Really? And to get the force of this question, we must remember something that had happened just a few years earlier when Ahaziah's father was king. I think it's all but certain that Ahaziah had witnessed this. Certainly he'd heard about it. It was the famous confrontation here on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the so-called prophets of Baal. 1 Kings 18, you know, the story. you know the story. More to the point, so did Ahaziah. And somewhere in his confused mind, I'm perfectly sure he could still hear that voice of Elijah that day. Who could forget it? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The Lord, the, sorry, the God who answers by fire. He is God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And it was, wasn't it? It was known that day. Well, now here, the question. <laughs> for Ahaziah's messengers. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal? Really? Don't you remember? The Lord's messenger continued with the word that Ahaziah's messengers must take back to their king. Verse 4, Now therefore thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. You shall surely die. The precise words spoken to Adam in the Garden of Eden, warning him of the certain consequences of disobedience to the word of God. This was serious. Ahaziah's mission to Baal in Ekron was in the same category as Adam's disobedience in the garden. We read at the end of verse 4, so Elijah went. It's a sort of typical of the way Bible writers tell their stories. There's so much packed into those three words, so Elijah went. That is, he did exactly what he'd been told to do. He went up, presumably, into the, to the hills west of Samaria. He intercepted the messengers, Ahaziah's messengers, and he delivered the message that he'd been given. That's scene two. Scene three, the confrontation. Uh, We're looking at verses five through to eight. And we're taken now back to the palace in Samaria. King Ahaziah, he's still in his bed, no doubt in considerable pain, waiting for news from the men that he sent. And suddenly the doors swing open and there they are. Verse five. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, 
Why have you returned? You couldn't possibly have been to Ekron and back so quickly. Verse 6, they said to him, uh, there came a man to meet us. And he said, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. I think I want to say, well done, messengers. <laughs> that must have taken some courage. Or maybe, just maybe, they found themselves a little more scared of Elijah than they were of the bedridden king. But either way, they faithfully delivered the message. Listen to the king, verse 7. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? What kind of man? What was he like? You start to get the feeling that Ahaziah had some idea who it might have been who would send a message like this. Did he recognize the tone? Even the words? Verse 8, they answered him, well, he, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. It's a small point, but it is strange, isn't it, that these messengers didn't know who it was who had confronted them. Maybe the great Elijah had lately become an obscure figure in Israel. But Ahaziah knew. Verse 8 again, he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Scene 4, the fool. How would the son of Ahab and Jezebel respond to the message from my God is Yahweh? Is it because there is no God in, is in Israel, Ahaziah? Really? Can't you remember? What's the matter with you, man? Now, before we read on and see how he actually responded, I can imagine a number of possible responses, can't you? Like, oh, of course. How foolish of me. I wonder whether Elijah would come and pray for me to the true and living God. I wonder whether God would have mercy on me. I mean, that's a possible response, is it not? Well, look at what he did in verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. The king did what kings do. He sent. This time it's not messengers, as in verse 2, but soldiers. He sends a platoon. His response to the message from my God is Yahweh is a show of force. I wonder what he had in mind. What could he possibly have had in mind? Did he think he was going to take Elijah out? Well, why would you need 50 men to do that, really? Unless perhaps you remembered Mount Carmel. But then what would you be thinking 50 soldiers could do? There had been 450 prophets of Baal, you remember. See, he became a fool. He became a fool. Follow the captain with his platoon. Again, in verse 9, he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill. Literally, it's, it's the mountain. This is one of the hints that I th I'm quite sure it was Mount Carmel. 
uh, and, and said to him, see what the captain said, O man of God, the king says, come down. O man of God, said the captain. Was he being sarcastic? I think he probably was. O man of God, the king says, come down. That's not how it works. Verse 10, but Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. There's a, there's a play on words here. It's, um, it's really quite striking. Um, the writers of these stories, they're, they're, they're really so clever, apart from everything else. It's inspired by God. It's true. It's wonderful. It's, uh, but they're clever as well. Man, man, ish, fire, ish. If Elijah is the ish of God, then it won't be the ish that comes down. At the, at the king's command, it'll be Aish from heaven. I wonder if the captain remembered. He must have, surely. On this very mountain, if I've got my geography right, this had been the challenge. The God who answers by fire, he is God. You remember that in 1 Kings 18? And who could forget how the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and a whole lot more. Well, now the man who undeniably had been God's man says, if I am the man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And we read in verse 10, then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Not time for joking, really, is it? This is a terrible scene. It's not easy to witness. For nothing less than God's wrath was revealed that day against the ungodliness and unrighteousness in Israel who by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. You see, Ahaziah, is turning to Baal at his moment of need was symptomatic of the wickedness and evil that pervaded Israel into which he had led Israel because of their repudiation of the God who is God. Despite Mount Carmel, despite Mount Carmel, for goodness sake, they were able to suppress the truth. They did suppress the truth. Uh, This is summed up... um, the shadow that hangs over this story is summed up by just looking at the very last verse of 1 Kings. Just glance back there with me. It's probably on the same page if you've got, if you've got my edition it is. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 52. He, this is Ahaziah being spoken of here. He, Ahaziah, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. That's what this fire from heaven was about. Matthew Henry, as usual, captures the significance of this moment rather beautifully. Uh, I just quote him. Uh, Elijah had earlier fetched fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice in token of God's acceptance of that sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of the people. But they, 
having slighted that, now the fire falls not on the sacrifice, but on the sinners themselves. Whatever else is to be said, the fire certainly answered the all-important question in verses 3 and 6, as surely as it had a few years earlier. The God who answers by fire, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, Ahaziah was a, uh, what will you describe him as? A seriously slow learner. <laughs> because somehow, somehow the news got back to him of what had happened. So what did he do? Look at verse 11. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. Well, let's reread this quickly. And uh, he answered him and said, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. It has been said, has it not, that a sure sign of madness is doing exactly the same thing and expecting a different outcome? Verses 11 and 12 follow almost exactly. Verses 9 and 10, there are some interesting changes, but it's pretty well the same. Just, just try, and, try and picture the, the arrogance. Sending another lot. The madness. I mean, it's hardly an overstatement, is it, to say he became a fool. Well, again, somehow he heard what happened. Don't know how the word got back to him, but it did. Uh, to this second attempt to deal with the problem prophet. So what do you think he did? Verse 13. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. How would you describe this king? Defiant, obstinate, stupid. Now you can come up with your own adjectives. But certainly he had little, little regard for the lives of his troops. That's a little bit of an insight into him, isn't it? He simply refused, he simply refused to face the truth. But in a turn to the, in the story, the third captain had a little bit more sense than his king. So verse 13, the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. At last. This captain simply pleaded for mercy for himself and for his men. He did really the only sensible thing to do in the face of the righteous wrath of God. Beg for mercy. Beg for grace. Beg for forgiveness. If only King Ahaziah had the sense of this man. Now we come to scene five. You're wondering how many scenes there are. I'm not going to tell you. Scene five, which I'll call that question again. Scene five, that question again. This is verses 15 and 16. Verse 15. 
then the angel or messenger of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. There'd be good reason to be afraid of him, but do not be afraid of him. That wonderful biblical phrase that we hear again and again. Well, here it is in a, in a, in a quite striking context. Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. See, the question won't go away. Is it because there is no god in Israel, Ahaziah? Really? The truth is, and you know it, Ahaziah, that the God in Israel is the only true and living God. Turn from him to something else. And there just isn't anything more foolish possible. It's turning from goodness to evil. It's turning from light to darkness. It's turning from life to death. It's turning from truth to lies. Scene six, which I just title, And So. This is verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, so he died. According to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. You see, that's what happens with the word of the Lord. It happens. It comes true. Verse 17 again, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. He had one of those situations, right? Both got the same name, different, all very confusing. Because Ahaziah had no son. So Jehoram was Ahaziah's brother, uh, another son of Ahab and Jezebel. It's not promising. And the account of Ahaziah's reign closes, as so many others in this history. Uh, Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? We don't need to hear any more about this king of Israel. But this story, this story, makes for a powerful, disturbing opening to the second book of Kings, do you not think? Ahaziah made his choice. You remember Elijah's ultimatum on that day, if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. Ahaziah chose to follow Baal, even if he had to send to Ekron to find him. Why would you do that? It's easy for us, I suppose, to sit here and ask that question. But it's quite a question, isn't it? Why would you do that? His determination to suppress the truth is, it's astonishing. Claiming to be wise. He became a fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. Therefore, God gave him up. And yet, The choice made by Ahaziah into which he led his people 
is we must now understand the choice made by our world whose determination to suppress the truth is every bit as astonishing. What accounts for the determination all around us? We see it, we experience it all the time to turn anywhere, anywhere, but to God as trouble overwhelms us. We want to say, is it because there is no God? Really? The events on Mount Carmel, just a few years before the episode in 2 Kings 1, that show up the wicked foolishness of Ahaziah's turning from God to Baal, those events have now been surpassed by a demonstration that has, been, that has occurred in, the, in, the, in, the, in time and place for the whole world in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ his resurrection from the dead in these events the God who is really there has made himself known and he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead It does seem to me that King Ahaziah's story in 2 Kings chapter 1 helps us to see the wicked foolishness of a world that insists on suppressing the truth. You want to say, really? Can't you remember? But this is our world, isn't it? Is there a solution? Well, yes, there is. It's hinted at in that third captain who had the, th- the, the, the good sense to beg for mercy from the man of God on Mount Carmel. And you might have noticed, he received mercy. Our prayer for our troubled world must begin, Lord, have mercy. The message for our troubled world is the message of Mount Carmel, amplified by the message of Easter. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Jesus Christ's death and resurrection hold out to this truth-suppressing world. Mercy, kindness, love, life to all who come to their senses. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we have had our minds turned to the world in which we live. As we see our world through the lens of your word, we thank you for how it helps us to see it clearly. But we pray that you would have mercy on this world. It's confusion and its willful suppression of the truth. Have mercy on us to the degree that we have been caught up with our world, drift with our world. 
But we pray, Heavenly Father, for the gospel message going out to our world, calling it to repentance, calling it to bow the knee to the one who has been appointed to judge the whole world and whom you have raised from the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Truth For Life. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.